This morning we continue uh, our walk through the book of Revelation this morning and we're actually going to be in chapter 13 again if you recall where we've been to this point in the last couple of weeks. Um, last week we were away from the book of Revelation but to rehearse for you at the end of chapter 12 what we saw because the scene kind of is escalating now out of or from chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12 you had Satan that is the dragon. He was twice thwarted by the woman. He is overcome by the church. And uh, you recall the response of the dragon being thwarted by the church. He turned in response and he called forth a beast to arise out of the sea. And this is the end, the, the final scenery of chapter 12, and it leads on into 13, the description of who is the beast that he just called forth from the sea. What we see in this beast is that Satan is empowering it. That's critical at the very first portion. What we have tried to stay away from in light of the beast is that this beast of Revelation 13, that is the one rising out of the sea, is uh, we've tried to stay away from jumping into our immediate future outlook and thinking this beast is clearly someone somewhere else way out in the future, and it's going to be personified in a single individual. What we've done is, is maybe that is true, as we'll find elsewhere. But as we look at Revelation 13, and we are true to Revelation 13, and then we allow it to guide us before we make our leaps beyond. First, we realize that this beast of Revelation 13 is that, fueled by the dragon. There, if we were to walk through the scenery that we've already covered together in the first half of the chapter, he is given power, he is given authority, and he is given dominion over the saints. He is given power to exert authority over the saints of God, and even more so, those who are not the saints of God. Of God, Those who we would kind of think, he would not exert power over them in a heinous manner. Because they're on his side. They're together. There's them and then there's us. That's kind of how we can think in those terms. But yet we find out that no one, and this is where the gospel speaks, no one is on the side of the beast. No one, willingly. They will not find out a day of deliverance those who have spurned the gospel will be so delivered by spurning the gospel. That will not occur. They are not his friends. I have said this application several times throughout. Sin is not your friend. And you find that out right here in Revelation 13, among other passages throughout the book of Revelation. It is not your friend. It's not like you can be its bosom buddy and then you can uh, live out this lifestyle. You can so uh, be in tune with the beast so as to be delivered in your own day when the saints of the Most High are delivered on that day of the Lord Jesus' return. That will not occur. The beast is a murderer. Today, yesterday, and tomorrow. The dragon is a murderer and he seeks even the sons of disobedience, those outside of the gospel, he seeks their destruction, not their good. So though they feast on earth's pleasures, no one denies that sin is pleasurable. Though they feast upon this, and a caution to you, I trust that you are not. It can ultimately deliver 
And the happiness in a moment is giving way to death in a final outcome. And this beast rises and he begins to exert that authority over the sons of disobedience and over the saints. However, the sons of disobedience are truly conquered. They die. They rise. Do you recall the resurrection in Revelation 20? Only to die a second time. That's the outcome. Death unto death. For all whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm summarizing for you and you can read the text itself at a later time and see that those are the realities from this passage. Yet even though the beast will rise, he will exercise authority, power, and dominion even over the saints, so as, the text says, to conquer them. Though they die, they through their death are overcoming. They will be raised, Revelation 20. Just and the unjust will be all raised. But they will be raised to life eternal. This is the final outcome of the saints of the Most High. It's not that right now you will be a superhero in your Christian life and ultimately overcome every obstacle in your way in a moment. But you will, by grace, overcome truly in the end by the power of Christ. As he was raised, so too will you be raised. And you will live with him forever. This is the outcome and the victory of the saints. Though it might not be experienced in time, it is ultimately experienced in eternity. They will be raised. Now, as to the original context of this beast, by way of rehearsal for you, what have we said? If the beast is not in this text of Revelation 13, a single individual at a single moment in time exerting single authority over people, what is it then in Revelation 13 that John's original first century audience would have clearly recognized as the beast of Revelation 13 rising out of the sea? And I've submitted to you, and I trust that you can grasp with me, that it is Rome. It is Rome who is the beast of Revelation 13. I rehearse briefly for you the role of Nero and his shadowy presence everywhere in the book of Revelation. And for many of you talking with you after service, it was quite eye-opening to you. You had heard of Nero historically, and yet his immorality, his altogether uh, vulgar life was quite eye-opening. And his shadow, his, his presence was felt all over the book of Revelation. So the beast, collectively, this, this presence is Rome. And it's a symbol, the beast is a symbol of self-deification of the state. That is, the state declares itself within this first century context, this beast arising to persecute the church is declaring itself divine. It, it, it called forth, as we're teaching our son Owen right now, his, his, his pledge of allegiance. Put your hand over your heart, stand this morning at the table and pledge your allegiance to the flag. And as he, we're working through this rehearsal and, and remembering uh, this sovereign country within which he lives and his role as a citizen and doing his part and this sense of allegiance and pledging to his fellow men within this land, I pledge allegiance to the flag. And so it was. I pledge allegiance. 
And, and, and the call in this first century beastly context to Rome is, I pledge allegiance, declare your allegiance. Caesar is Lord. Thus we see immediately the context of difficulty for the Christian. Paul had already spoken within the early church. It was recognized the church only confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, then you have a problem on your hands. If a sense of not having paranoia about these grassroots individuals, this thing called the Christian church, the ones who follow the way, if we're nervous about them causing problems within Roman provinces already, speak to them and declare to them to confess Caesar is Lord. And if they won't, they need to be stopped. So there's a sense in which this beastly figure is Rome, and it's declaring economic and political loyalty and allegiance. Caesar is your Lord. There's a word here, I think, without conspiracy theory, I, I, I think, and, and you, can, you can make of it uh, uh, your own in, in way of specific application, but I do think it's, it's a bit applicable to our, to our broad common discussion, even within the role of modern government, is a role of, of, of uh, wherever each of us are in the assigning to government its role. And, and, and those various things, and, and this is not a uh, politicized pulpit. All of you who have attended here at Redeemer know that not to be the case, but nonetheless where there is quite obvious application uh, in, in quite difficult matters. In the assigning, I think, of the role of government in some of our thoughts um, into provision, into um, policy, welfare protection, and, and et cetera, et cetera. In provisionary role of the expanse, there is a question in the mind of Savior and Lord that I, that I, I would submit to you is, is a thought upon the Christian mind within Christian ethic to meditate clearly upon. A thought there for us, I would submit to you, is the role and the sense of deification of state government or a deification or a sense of delivery about the role of government. And I think there is a role here that within the first century Rome, it begins to be so empowered that it would declare for itself a role of self-deification. We provide for you. We care for you. And your pledge of allegiance is unto Rome in response. This morning from our text in the second half, we'll see the call of the second beast. He rises out of the earth, and the terror is already being experienced through the first portion by way of the first beast from the sea. Now he's calling forth a second beast to arise out of the earth and join in escalating the terror of the first beast. So it isn't like one beast is operating and another beast is now going to be operating. What we're going to witness through this text is what many commentators would call an unholy trinity. You have the dragon. You have his savior deliverer as the first beast and you have that which comes alongside and calls forth allegiance and worship unto the second beast, this ungodly Holy Spirit. So you have you have this this sense of Satan's mimicry, his parallelism to his activities mirroring that of the divine. And this morning it gives way to a second beast who rises and he is priestly in his role he is calling forth worship and it is the beast or as we have heard the false religious 
prophet or the beast of false religion. This is in its original context before we go forward. And I just wanted for two things this morning for us to look at two elements of this false prophet so that we could, armed with this thought from Holy Scripture, be able to discern his role in culture now. Again, I have submitted to you that the book of Revelation, we are in this 42-month period. We are in this millennial age. And these realities are occurring in time now. And they will be brought to consummation in the end. So right now, is there a false prophet within culture broadly and more narrowly, even personified in pulpits and places? The, fall, the beast of false religion, this is in its first century context, it is a symbol of religious power and influence. Religious power and influence is this second earthly beast. How do we know, how have we assigned to this beast, before we've gotten into the text, how have we assigned to this false prophet that he is religious in nature? That we've said the first one is economic and political in nature. That is, the beast out of the sea, he is rising and declaring itself divine. That is, as a governance, we are divine, us and our rulers, our governing bodies. And now there's this religious take that it has in the second beast. It infuses religious power into the mix, calling forth allegiance and worship. How so? Well, in Revelation 16, uh, continuing on beyond Revelation 16, we won't turn there, but from Revelation 16, Revelation 19, and Revelation 20, as we'll continue to develop and get there, is this one is specifically referred to as the false prophet. That is, he's religious in his role. This is the primary concern, and we have this taking place every day, throughout the world, a sense of prophetic ministry that comes and says to the congregant, thus saith the Lord, right, in this language of Old Testament prophecy, and they come with a sense of authority, they come with a sense of scholarship and a sense of ability, and even with a smile on their face, and they say, thus saith the Lord, and they begin to develop a text, or maybe not. And in that, they are declaring that this is coming to you with the Lord's authority. This is for you right now to take and apply to your life and to live by. And we find out through this text, we'll see these are prophetic indeed, as they call forth authority, but they are false in their prophecies. They are essentially liars, false teachers. And this morning I want to look at two elements from this text and then make applications so as to create within the mind an ability to discern, heighten our awarenesses to this role within popular culture and be able to have our senses reinvigorated to be keen listeners for this role of the false prophet in the age of the church. Look with me at the text as I'll begin reading with you. I'll read the whole text and we'll come back and we'll look for these two aspects of false prophecy within the church. Look with me in verse 11 and uh, kind of put yourself there through this text as a first century audience as you're hearing the great revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. That is significant. And it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, 
whose mortal wound was healed. You remember that, that kind of redemptive mimicry, this redemptive role of the first beast who suffered a mortal wound and somehow resurrected. Verse 13 is this role of the false prophet continues. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of all the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give birth to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This is the response. Declare it and fall and worship and obey or be slain. And it also causes both small and great, both rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast for the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six, six. Six. Looking at our text this morning, there are two aspects, as I said to you, I, I want to kind of bring out and then uh, allow you to meditate on and going forward to heighten your senses with relation to the role of this text in your daily life. There's two things we want to note. Aspect number one about what helps us discern the role of this false prophet is right there in verse 11. And the first one is it's a confusing composition. It's confusing composition. That's what he is. First and foremost, the first aspect to this false prophet is he's a, or it's, this, this role of false religion is a confusing composition. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at him there in verse 11, he is a lamb dragon. Right, so, so, so already you're recognizing that he's hard to recognize. You're not sure to put your thumb on the role of this false religion in your life. The sense of credence with which you listen, discern, and apply. It's confusing. Where are these images of lamb and dragon coming from to assign it to this role of false beast? Well, John is already communicating that its appearance with confusion is the response might be from the people of God. In the first portion of verse 11, you would say something like this. Praise the Lord. He's a lamb. You look upon him, you hear what he's saying, you view the works, you see his role, you see people weeping, and you say, praise the Lord. Here he is. This is the response. Why? Because the image that's being communicated to you about this beast is he looks like a lamb. And he says, has seven horns. So wait a minute. You as a reader now are thinking, wait a minute. How do I discern this lamb figure? I know of one lamb that has appeared with horns that he bears in royal authority. Speaking of a sovereign kingship, I know one. And he already appeared in Revelation 5. And we, we immediately identified as Revelation 5 continues to develop this one who is a lamb with seven horns. And it gives way to worship. 
And then we rejoice over the new song that we sing. Your blood has been slain. And by your blood you have ransomed a people for God from every language, people, tribe, and nation. And we rejoice and we worship and worship. And myriads of angels worship and worship this lamb who has seven horns. So here, this confusing mixture of this role of false religion, not that of the lamb. Yet he looks like a lamb. But to the discerning, we recognize the horn imagery is severely less than the authority of Christ. Yet he might look like Christ. That is, he is a lamb figure. He is religious in nature. He comes with authority. He declares, thus saith the Lord, and we say, praise the Lord. And then we discern, listen a little closer to the content of his message. Don't be fooled by the persona. Guy Smiley, right? He tells you the truth with a smile on his face. And you say, man, that guy looks good. That seems right. That's good stuff. This guy's weeping. And then you, you, you sit and you listen for more. And you start to hear the content a little closer. And the content isn't like the appearance. That's why it's confusing. The content is dragon. Lies are coming out for the discerning. Let me read for you kind of a little piece of how this might sound. How is it that a false religion can sound so good? It can look so appealing, and yet it can be straight from the dragon. Remember, the dragon stands behind the prophet, fueling, empowering, and giving authority that ultimately he might deceive the nations. Now, let me read for you. This is what it might sound like. Listen as a discerning reader. I know when I read things, I always give the meaning away before I finish my reading. Uh, so I'm going to give it away to you, but let's just pretend that you're hearing it without me commentating on it. And let me just read for you, how would this sound? You've gone to this rally. Here comes the seductive message of the speaker, Guy Smiley. He stands up and he says, come to Christ, for only he and he alone can better you. So far, you're listening. You heard Christ alone. See, I'm commentating. I was supposed to only read, but I'm already filling in. My defenses are up. And as you better yourself in Him, I'm hearing Christ, Christ alone. I'm seeing it's in Him that I am being strengthened. As you better yourself in Him, you'll experience, and I say with the biggest smile that I can garnish, You will begin to experience others' admiration. You will experience their acceptance that you have yet to experience in your life. And in Him, you will begin to garnish others' respect. Better yourself with Jesus, and you will experience His saving power with great career success. He will surround you, for He loves you, 
He will surround you with the attraction of others. And then you, as the listener, you begin to hear Christ alone. In Him you must better yourself. And yet, as you discern, Guy Smiley is speaking closer like the dragon than Christ, the Lamb. You are hearing a message that leaves its imprint that ultimately Jesus, Him alone, is a means to...